Well, we're glad you're here this morning, and uh, we're going to look into uh, Revelation chapter 14, chapter 12. If you haven't, if you haven't been with us, uh, we're going kind of chapter by chapter and uh, looking at the overview of what's taking place at the end time, especially the tribulation and a tribulation time, which is the prophesied by Daniel and uh, is also by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24, 25, and then moving into the millennial kingdom. And so that's the book of Revelation, and we are looking in chapter 12, 13, 14, and most of 15 is kind of a, a, kind of a uh, bird's eye view looking at the whole period of time. Chapter 12 gave us some of the main characters, the nation of Israel, uh, the, the Christ that came out of Israel, the beast that's going to persecute, chapter 13. The, in chapter 13, you have the unholy trinity, you have the beast out of the earth, you have the beast out of the sea, you have the uh, Satan. Uh, and so, chapter 14, you still, it's not moving forward chronologically, you still have an overview going on in chapter 14. In chapter 14, you begin to see, see it, let me say it again, 12, you had the major players, 13, and, and remember, it wasn't broken up into chapters. This is just how it was laid out in, in the writing. But 13, you have the unholy trinity, and beginning in 14, you have the triumph of Christ. And, but again, it's not moving forward the chronological time, it's just an overview of what's going to be taking place. So chapter 14, for the most part, is just looking forward. Chronologically, at this point, we have seen in the Scripture nearly all of the seven-year tribulation. We, we've, seen the, we've seen the trumpets blown, and we've seen the uh, bowls, judgments. And so I don't know time-wise, but we're the latter part of the tribulation, but the writer stops and, and gives us another overview to help us understand what is happening. And, and this overview is about, chapter 14, is the triumph of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So read with me, if you would, the first five verses. Chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We, now we, we saw this 144,000 back in chapter 7, and we understand that they are representative of Israel. 12,000 came from each tribe of Israel. <clears throat> Let me, let me go back further than that, and uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think as I go along about for who, you who've been on vacation or if you haven't been. I think about this during the week because I'm studying, but you're not thinking about it during the week. You're thinking about golf, probably. 
<laughs> so, 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 but, but what's happening in, in, in this period of time, the tribulation is designed to bring the Jewish nation to faith in Christ. The tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's what the Old Testament prophets said, that the tribulation is the end time before the thousand-year reign in the chronology of Israel. And so um, when, when you're looking at Daniel's prophecy and he gives you those successive kingdoms that's going to come, and then there's going to be the kingdom cut out without hands, and, when, and that is the Lord's kingdom, and, and so what, what you're looking at is that you're looking toward the fulfillment of the covenant given uh, in, in the Old Testament toward Israel. And, and so when you come to the tribulation time, the church is gone. We who know Christ are gone. And, and so the tribulation and the following events are about telling the world, proving to the world that Christ kept his covenant with Israel. And, and it proves to the world that he is a covenant-keeping God and that he has always had a plan and he's always worked his plan. And see, today, no one believes that today except we few who are Bible believers. We believe in a covenant-keeping God and that we know he's still in control. If, if not, you know, we would be floundering, wondering what's happening in our, in our world. So he's, that, that's what he's moving toward and you read in the book of Isaiah about these things happening as well, and I didn't put them in the notes because it's too extensive. So you have, you have this 144,000 and 12,000 out of every tribe of Israel, and they're representative of Israel as a whole, and they make it through the tribulation. When, when we read here that the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion, Mount Zion is the physical mountain in Israel. Now, some people believe, as, the, as you study, some people believe that this is in heaven. But in the context, it's actually on, on the mountain. These, these men who have gone through the 144,000, they have not been raptured. They haven't been taken in heaven. They're on earth with the Lord on Mount Zion. You say, but the Lord hasn't come back. Okay, this is looking at the end when Christ does come back. This is looking to the end of the tribulation when Christ does come back and they're standing there with him, and I'm going to go through very quickly, but they learned the new song of heaven. The song is, you remember when you saw the, the people in heaven around the throne, the 24 elders, and they had harps, and now they're, they're playing, and this, this is the song of heaven, and, and these redeemed people can learn it, and, and they, they hear it, they're learning it, what you find in verse 2 and 3. And verse 4, the first thing we read, they're not defiled uh, by immorality. Verse 4, they're the ones who are not defiled with women because they're virgins. These 144,000 who were sealed by the Lord never give in to that immorality. When it's, it's talking about they're not defiled by women, it doesn't mean that if you marry someone that that defiles you. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it simply means is that they never gave in to the immoral culture of, of that time. When you look at what's happening even in the United States, now this has always been true in the world, it's always been true in, in the history of nearly every nation. It was true in the first century church. Uh, Paul deals with it in Corinthians. There's always immorality. 
Uh, in Christ's time, he forgave prostitutes. You know, so it's, it's always been Satan tempts toward the lust of the flesh through sexual immorality. And it, it, in, our, in our society, in our time, we have seen with the lessening of biblical authority, the rise of sexual immorality. And so it, it, just, it just goes together. When, when you talked about when Paul was dealing with the Corinthians, what you do if you, read, if you read history about the Romans and the Greeks is that part of their worship had to do with uh, sexuality. And how more could you influence a man than if you said to him, part of your worship is having immoral relationships with this prostitute who's a temple prostitute? Now, an unregenerate man, that is appealing because it's appealing to the flesh, plus it's giving you the significance of that this is part of your worship. That makes sense to you? Now, it makes sense to the world. And it makes sense, I understand it because I'm a man and I struggle with the lust of flesh as you, as you do. And it's not limited to men, by the way. But what I'm, what I'm saying to you is that when you have the approval of your priests and your leadership that this is, this is how you can live, and this is not only how you can live, but this is part of your worship, then it becomes rampant. And what we're, what we're seeing today is that uh, it's rampant in our culture. Free sexuality is rampant in our culture because it is Satan's plan to cause us to keep our eyes on ourselves and our own pleasures and our own freedom and our own liberty instead of glorifying Christ. Instead of saying that I belong to Christ, I am accountable to honor him. So now move down with me and to... Verse 5. Well, let's deal again with verse 4. These are the ones who are not defiled women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So, first fruits means there's others to follow. The nation of Israel is going to be saved individually, one by one. The nation of Israel, those who survived the tribulation, are going to be saved and believe in Jesus as the Savior. Verse 5, and in their mouth there was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So these 144,000, it doesn't mean they were without sin in their humanly body, but it means they were without fault. When you're reading in Timothy and Titus about the, uh, about the qualifications for a deacon, they are to be blameless. This is the same thing. Blameless doesn't mean you're without sin. It means you're without indictment. It means there was, you're without reproach in your life. It means you're so living a life publicly that you cannot be condemned for your public life. And we talked about before what's happening, and I saw it again in the news this week. The Catholic Church is getting together a proclamation against abortion, and in doing that, they're dealing with the leader of our country, uh, because he, ad, he, he actively advocates for abortion, and the Catholic Church has a problem with that, and he professes to be a Catholic. And so it's really interesting to me what is, what is taking place. Also, the Speaker of the House, she's been included in that as well. And I'm not making a Republican statement. I'm talking about what's, what's just happening in, in the news. But they are with blame before their professed faith. 
and before their public church as well. And sometimes we are. And then we have the angel preaching to the world. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. This, the, preaching the everlasting gospel. So this angel goes through the heaven or through the atmosphere and goes to the nations. And, and, it, and when it talks about every tribe, every tongue, it's talking about totally. So it, it goes around the world preaching the everlasting gospel. Now there, there is a, people are saved throughout all of history, all of mankind. People have been saved by one way, and it's faith in God. And it's faith in God doing something for them. And we understand that it's through Christ. But before Christ came, people got saved by faith in God. And so this everlasting gospel, he's not preaching. God, the word gospel means good news. And this, this, I don't believe, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is the gospel of the majesty of God and that everyone is accountable to God. Everyone is accountable to be responsive to God. And so he is the creator He's the sustainer of all the universe. We owe him worship. And that worship, that salvation is going to come through our faith in him and what he does for us, which is Christ. In the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel came, and we're reading about it in Hebrews, it says they drank from that rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so Christ has always been the Savior There was just a period of time he had not come, and now he comes, and now there's a period of time after he's come, but he's always the Savior, and he's like, well, I don't know how people got saved when they didn't know about him. Faith in God. They had faith in God and what God could do for them in forgiving them, and that is the same thing. So what this this angel is preaching, he's preaching the... The coming of God. He's preaching the judgment of God. Again, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. When you read in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that the creator is Christ, that he created all things, he sustains all things. And so this angel is preaching this good news that God is going to bring judgment. And for all righteous people, we want the judgment of God to come. We, we want God to be vindicated. We, we want Christ to be exalted. Now, in the flesh, sometimes, we want ourselves to be vindicated. I, I, I want what I believe to be vindicated, don't you? I, I believe that, I, I believe that not, not that I interpret all things correctly in the scripture, but I, but I do believe that Christ is the Savior, that he is the Son of God, and that he deserves to be worshipped. And when he's not, I think he should be. And sometimes I make that more personal than it should be. I want to be vindicated in my belief. Don't you? I want to be vindicated. Uh, I, I want to be vindicated as a Christian before our unbelieving world. But, 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 Behind that, I should, and I'm saying I should, want that for the glory of God. I should want it for His glory and not mine. Don't you, if you ever get in an argument with someone, now you probably don't because 
you love people and you prefer others above yourself. But, <laughs> but occasionally, I get in an argument with someone, most often my spouse, and, and, you know, and you want to be vindicated. Don't you want to be vindicated? I want to be right. That just feels good. You know, I just want to be, I want to be proven right. Every now and then we'll say, well, you were right. And, and we inevitably, either one of us say, say that again? I didn't hear that. <laughs> and that's okay. But what we should want, we should want that for the glory of God. So when we, when we come to this passage and this angel is proclaiming that the judgment of God has come, this angel, and, and that's to the glory of God. Judgment is to the glory of God because he's righteous, he's holy. And, and it magnifies his worth is when, when those who do not are judged for it. And, and, and you, you have to balance anything. That seems harsh, but you balance that with the death of Christ on their behalf if they're willing to accept that. Because if you struggle with that, not having the understanding of the righteousness of God, the wrath of God is a righteous wrath and, and it's, it's justified, and it's to the glory of God. And if you don't see that, you're going to have trouble with the rest of the book of Revelation. You're going to have trouble with the rest of this chapter. It's going to be very difficult for you to understand what God is doing and, and how he, he would do that. So we say in verse 7, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, worship Him, made heaven and the earth springs of water. And now we go to verse 8, and he talks about, Babylon, the fall of Babylon. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon has always represented, um, ever, ever since the first bill, Babylon's always represented the antithesis of righteousness. It's always been an antithesis against God, it's always been a world system uh, that is in rebellion against God, that goes its own way. So when you hear the word Babylon, when it says Babylon has fallen, and we're going to read about it more in chapter 17 and 18, about the fall of Babylon, and, and we'll develop it a little then. But we're, so again, here he's looking forward. He's looking forward to see what's going to happen. And 17 and 18 gives us the details. But Babylon represents what is against God, and whether it is a person or whether it's a government or whether it's a city, whatever Babylon represents, it is against God and it's going to be held to account. And so here he's saying it it has fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So when people are drawn away, as all we've talked about before, when they're drawn away the lust of the flesh, they're drinking of the wine, of the fortification, of everything that's against God. And they're going to be held account for that. There's going to be a public accounting. There's going to be, uh, in, even in our world, at the, during the tribulation time and at the end of the tribulation time. So, verse 8. It's either a city or it's just a representative of Satan's rule and people following uh, this evil, evil rule. Verse 9, Then then a third angel uh, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image 
and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself also shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the tribulation time, and even before, but even especially in the tribulation time, which really is this dealing with, People who drink, and to our culture, we understand if you drink the Kool-Aid, drink the Kool-Aid means you're agreeing with that, you're going along with it. But anybody who drinks the Kool-Aid of the beast is going to drink of the wine of the wrath of God as well. So you make a choice, you live with your choice. And so this is what's going to happen to the worshipers of the beast. Unmixed means it's with no mercy. There's no mercy, there's no grace. When it says that you're going to experience that forever and ever. It means everlasting. It means it's an eternal damnation. And I want to remind you that Jesus had more to say about hell than any other person in the New Testament. And the hell that he talked about was an eternal, everlasting punishment of fire. And you, 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 you never were annihilated. You continually burn. And I feel like I need to say something when I say that because I, 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 don't, I don't know about you, but there's something in my nature that rebels against that. I think, how can God do that? How can God? Seem like a thousand years would be enough. Probably ten minutes would be enough. And people would, we would think they would repent. I would repent after ten minutes, you know, and you you would because we have the Spirit of God within us and we would think, no, God's right, I'm sorry, and we'd really be sorry. But we have the Spirit of God within us. Every unsaved person who goes to hell will never repent. They will never repent. And, and so the, that their judgment is continual eternally because they will never repent. See, to us, we think, I would, because we have the Spirit of God. We already believe in God. We, we believe in His holiness and His righteousness. But sin is an affront to the holiness of God. Sin, sin is a rebellion. And, and, it, and if the rebellion never goes away, the judgment never goes away. I hope that makes sense to you. I hope that that will give you a sense of, of, of the righteousness of God and not feel, and I don't feel like I have to defend the righteousness of God, but biblically, we see the righteousness of God, and I want you to understand it. So biblically, there is a, a, a defense of the righteousness of God. And, and so he doesn't defend himself. He just gives us his character in the scripture. And what we struggle with, and what I struggle with, is understanding the immensity of his holiness. See, I feel like God is like the pastor of the church or like the mayor of the city or the president of a nation or your parent or whoever's in authority in your life, like your boss or we, I feel like God is like that, except He's just to a greater degree. But see, that's not biblical. God is other. He, he, he is other. He is not human. We're made in His image, but He is not. He, he, he is. He is indescribable. Okay, so are you getting the, are you getting the idea? You say, "Well, I don't understand completely." Well, Joel. Join the club. I don't. I don't either. And we can't. If we did, we'd be God. But 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 we need to have a biblical vision that He is worthy of our worship. 
and and we need to acknowledge that and he is he, he's righteous in all his character and his attributes and all his actions and his wrath is righteous and uh, so even when he judges us as his children it's in righteousness and it's for his glory so look in verse 12 and 13 or did we get how far did we get um, did, did I read verse 11? The smoke of his, their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Who worship the beast and his image, and who receive the mark of his name. I talked about it even if I didn't read it. So now we did. So now in verse 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So here's the contrast. There are those who are going to be damned eternally. They're going to drink of the wrath of the indignation of God. And then here's the contrast of the saints. Saints are those who are set apart. Saints are not people who are without sin, but those who are set apart for Christ by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And here are their patient, those that keep the commandment of God. And then verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. Imagine if you were reading this in the first century. It was being read to you in your church in the first century. And, and you were facing persecution by the Jewish people and by the Gentile people. And you were facing persecution uh, about from, from your own families. When you trusted in Christ, you have... Uh, reputed their way of worship and their temple worship. And, and remember, they would have their weddings and their baby showers and they would have their birthday celebrations and their Father's Day celebrations. They would have all that at the temple and they would eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And in doing that, Paul said, you're worshiping the idol. And, and if that's your heart toward doing that. And so they're, they're doing that in... And, and when you... When you go away from all that, you're persecuted even by your own family. And, but then you think, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading, I'm believing in a God that I can't see. I, I'm believing in a man who died on the cross that I never met. I, I'm believing by faith in the report. Is it enough? And sometimes we, and every Christian has to answer that. Is it enough? I have to answer it. You have to answer it. And sometimes we go back to the answer and say, or, or, are we biblically right? Is this right? Did Christ die? Did Christ, was he resurrected? Was he the son of God? And when I answer yes, then that's my faith. And, and what happens when they're reading this in the first century and when we're reading it today, because we're becoming less and less of a, we've long passed, gone from being the majority in the U.S., and we are now a very small minority, and we're getting smaller all the time. People who believe that biblical truth and, 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 and are willing to live our lives by it and to stand for it and to be persecuted by our government and by our world, we're getting smaller and smaller, and it's going to become harder and harder in your lifetime, in my lifetime. I used to think it'd be in the lifetime of my grandkids, and then I moved it to my kids. And now it's in our lifetime. If we, it's happening today. We are being persecuted for what we believe in Christ. Politically first, but it will become economic. 
it, it will become economic at some point in time, and it is quickly moving, moving that way. So if you can imagine when you read this, and when I read it today, and I hope it does that for you, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right are the ble- right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now. And, and when you're in the tribulation, many of these Christian people are going to die. They're going to die for their faith. They're going to be martyred. They're going to be, their head's going to be cut off. They're, they're going to suffer un, un, untold. They're not going to be able to buy food for their children or their grandchildren. And, and, and you know, it, they would wrench your heart out, and you would have to decide, am I willing to let my children starve? Or am I going to profess my faith in Christ? And, and it's a decision that, that it's very difficult. It would be very difficult for me and very difficult for you. But when you read this and you see, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. What we need to remember is there is an eternity coming. I, 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 our, our lives, the uh, psalmist says, I used to say that so easy, it's, it's 70 years and by reason of strength, 80. Maybe I better sit down. <laughs> so, but there's an eternity after that. Our works follow. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we go to heaven for our works, but it means we're rewarded for our works. We're going to stand, we who know Christ, are going to stand in his presence one day at the Bema Seat of Judgment. The Bema Seat of Judgment is like a, a, a Greek rewards area. Our lives are going to be evaluated. Everything I did selfishly is going to be burned up, but everything I did for the sake of Christ is going to be rewarded eternally. Our works are going to follow. So it's really interesting that if we could remember that, this life is not the most important thing in my life. Today is not the most important thing in my life. I am am investing my faith for the future. You say, well, that, that seems selfish. Jesus taught us to do that. That's legitimate. We are to look to the reward. And the reward is the blessedness of being with God. It is the blessing that's the dwelling in his presence without the curse of sin. It's not that I'll be rewarded with money or things. It's not that I'll be rewarded with cars or houses. Or It's not that, but it's that I'm going to live in the presence of Christ without the curse of sin. Okay, and now the text gets a little more difficult. In verse, beginning in, in verse 14, we're going to see two reapings. Now, again, the writer's looking forward in the tribulation, and we're going to see two reapings. And the first one is the reaping of Christ. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Nearly every commentator I read after agrees, well, in fact, every commentator agrees, that's Christ. Okay, that's Christ, one like the Son of Man, and uh, having on his head a golden crown. And that golden crown in the Greek is a crown of a victor. Not a ruler, but a victor. Okay? And verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on, the cloud, on this cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he, so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
I was reading John MacArthur, and I really respect John MacArthur, and he has been one of my mentors studying over the years. And John MacArthur says, I don't, I don't agree with him on this passage. John MacArthur says that this is Christ, and that his sickle, his, and you know what a sickle is? A sickle is that you mow hay with. Today, you have the imagery of a weed eater. You know, you, you hold it with two hands, and the blade does the work for you. A sickle, you'd do the same thing. You'd hold it with two hands, but you would have to move it by your own manpower. So Christ has this sickle, and what John MacArthur says is that this sickle is the coming bold judgments upon the earth. It is the pouring out of his wrath in, in these coming days. And that very well may be. I, I just don't happen to agree with that. I, I, think, I think this is Christ, and I think he has this sickle, and he's coming to a time of reaping, and I think it's what we read in Matthew chapter 25. That's going to be on the screen for you, and I'm going to read it. In Matthew chapter, or chapter 24, in, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself gives to his disciples and to us an outline of the tribulation. He gives an outline of the tribulation. He comes all the way to the end of it. And, and then he, he, he talks about the regathering of Israel. And I think this is what's happening at this point in time. I think it is the regathering of Israel that he's speaking about. So read with me Matthew 24, verse 29. And Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the earth will be shaken. And we've been reading about these things that are going to take place in the earth, but he's saying immediately after the tribulation is what Jesus said. In verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Now the Son of Man, what do we read in Revelation? The Son of Man is on a cloud. This is the Son of Man. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then here's what I want you to get. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now who, in this context, when Jesus is speaking, his elect is not the church, it's Israel. It's the, it's the elect out of Israel. Okay, remember Paul says that not all Israel is Israel, but, but only those who are believing are the true Israel. And the, that's the elect. And I think when Jesus is speaking here, he's speaking to a disciple. They don't understand the church yet. They don't understand there's going to be a time of grace. And today it's been over 2,000 years that any person, any, any, any religion that they come, any background, uh, Paul said there's neither, there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, uh, Jew nor Gentile. So any race, any religion, any age, any sex, any person can believe in Christ and be saved through grace during this period of time. But here when he's speaking about, he's speaking to his disciples, to the nation of Israel. He's speaking about the elect of Israel. That's my interpretation of it as well. So I think that it's what it's speaking about in Revelation, that Jesus, at the end of the tribulation, he gathers out his elect. When you go on there in Matthew and, and Jesus speaks, there, there is a, uh, if you, 
I say when you go on, if you back up, I think it's Matthew chapter 6, that you have the wheat and the tares. You remember that parable that he gave? I mean, the, the wheat's growing and the, the, the worker comes and said, there's tares in the wheat, which are weeds. So there's tares in the wheat. And shall I cut them out? He said, no, because if you go cut them out now, you're going to cut out the, the wheat as well because you can't tell the difference. And so he said, wait until the, the end of time, the reaper, and then we'll gather the tares and we'll gather the wheat and then we'll separate them out at the, at the time of harvest. So that parable that Jesus gave is what's happening here. These, and, and here's another reason I think, because go on with me now back in chapter, back in chapter 14. And because there's another angel with another sickle. Okay, then verse 17. Another, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. You're like, now why would they stick that in there? If you can remember, as we, as we read through Revelation, when we see the, when we see the altar in heaven... Two different times, we have seen the incense of the prayer of the saints. And I think this is what it's referring to. When he has power over fire, it's talking about he has power over fire of the altar in heaven. And that has to do with the prayer of the saints. And the prayer of the saints is for the vindication of God. So this angel also having a sharp sickle, another angel came out of the altar at the power of fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him at the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Okay, why would there need to be two? Why would Christ need a sickle and reap the earth if an angel is going to come right behind him and reap the earth? So in my understanding, Christ reaps the elect out of the earth, and then the second angel comes and he reaps the harvest of judgment upon those who are not the, the elect, those un, unbelieving. <clears throat> what a terrible time. What a terrible time is going to take place uh, when, when judgment falls. I think when we read through this about the reaping of the un, unbelievers, <clears throat> I, I don't know if you remember, how many of you know the Battle Hymn of the Republic? Want me to sing it to you? Maybe I'll let Robert sing it to you. <laughs> let, me give you let me give you this. Let me give you this verse. We've been singing about this as long as we can remember. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath were stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible, swift sword. His truth is marching on. We've been singing about the judgment of God coming to the earth in America. We've been singing about that for however long this was written. And, but the Bible teaches this, is that the judgment upon the earth is coming. And, and, and the wine press. I think, again, we're looking at what's going to be taking place in the future. And this is, I believe, referring to the Battle of Armageddon. When, when you have this measurement of distance, it's talking about the Valley of Megiddo that will fit this, that will fit this. And the blood's, I, I think it's, 
I don't think the blood will run to the horse. But say again, I may be changing the actual words, but it'll be blood splatter. When, when Christ comes, and, 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 and this is in chapter 19, when Christ comes with his army, there's going to be not a battle. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. But the armies of the world will be gathered there, probably millions and millions and millions of, of armies gathered here, and, and they're going to go first. They're going to go against Israel. Now they're going against each other. But actually, they're going to go against the Lord. But it's not going to be a battle. It's going to be a slaughter. It's going to be the sharp sickle of the, of, of, of like we sing here, the, the Lord's sword out of his mouth. That's how he's described. The sword out of his mouth, the word of God, will disseminate them. But physically, it will destroy them. <clears throat> because you read that there's going to be called the birds to come and eat the flesh of all those that have been destroyed. So it's talking about a literal, physical battle that happens that the armies of the world are immediately destroyed. Terrible time, isn't it? Terrible time. If you have people in your family that you don't know are saved, you need to talk to them. You need to risk being rejected. You need to risk uh, being mocked. And, but, but talk to them about their soul. Talk to them. If you have grandchildren, talk to them about their soul. If you don't believe that they're saved, they need to know Christ because these are coming, and I believe it's coming soon. I believe that for the last... 30, 40 years, but I still, so we're closer now than we were 30, 40 years ago. But th- this is coming. This is real. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press after the horse's bridle. The sad thing is for these people, after that, there's going to be a resurrection for them. They're going to stand in the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment, see, at this time, they just physically die, and they're cast into hell. But at one point in time, we're going to get to it in Revelation, death and hell is going to give up the people who are in them, and they're going to stand before God individually. Individually, every person ever created is going to stand before God and answer for their sin. Okay, so let me say again. They're going to go to hell because they're a rebel against God. But it's justified because they are sinners. They chose to sin. When I sin, it's I'm choosing to sin. And, 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 but the difference is, is that our sin is forgivable because we're under the blood of Christ. But their sin is not forgivable because they're not under the blood of Christ. So they're going to go because they're a rebel and because they chose to be a rebel. They chose to sin. And, and, so we could go from there. I think there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell. And I'm, I'm saying to you, I think, I think, so it's my, my opinion, my understanding of Scripture. I think there's going to be degrees of reward in heaven. We've talked about that. There's going to be degrees of reward in hell. I mean, a punishment in hell because of people's level of rebellion and level of sin that they give themselves over, over to sin. So let me end with this. And then... The men can be dismissed to go practice for the men's choir. All, all these visions concern what's going to happen in the tribulation. When we've gone through 14, this is looking at the tribulation as a whole. This is, uh, most of this hadn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. The angel hasn't preached, but uh, the judgment hasn't come, but it's going, going to happen. And the first thing we need to take away is a warning. For myself, I need to I need to be warned 
I need to I need to take seriously the holiness of God and His right to be worshipped. And then second, we need to be encouraged. We need to say there there is a there is a hope. We do have a God. He is in control. When I listen to the news today, I don't have to be frustrated because God is in control. He He, he understands the course of this world. This this world is under the prince, the power of the air. This world is controlled by the forces of Babylon today. And I'm not talking about the party in charge. I'm talking about both parties. I'm talking about every person. Uh, Our temptation is the, the the lust, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We all struggle with that. And a person that doesn't know Christ, they're under that complete power. And and so consequently, they work that out in in that power. And so um, we just need to be encouraged as we read these things. And and even though they're horrific, we need to think that this is the righteousness of God. You hear that? That was right on time, wasn't it? That was right on time. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we ask you to help us to, uh, to think hard and to understand all that we can and to, Lord, trust your grace. Uh, Father, I, I pray that, uh, Lord, we would be encouraged as we look at our world, we look at history. Uh, Lord, we look at the things to come. When we look at our children, our grandchildren, our families, when we look at our church, And Lord, we see uh, the walls of persecution pressing in upon us and the the, the culture that's gone astray and the society that's so uh, wicked and the rise of immorality and all the things it pretends. And and Father, all the problems we cause among each other because of our own selfishness. And and, and Father, I I pray that you would help us to be encouraged. I I pray you'd help us to worship. Uh, Father, help us to have the faith to do what we can and what we're supposed to today, but then in the end that we are, are put it in your hand and, and rest in your grace and you be exalted because of our faith. Please help us in Christ's name. Amen.